you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, and uh, we're reading from verse 7. Luke chapter 22 and verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnish, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Amen. And we know God always blesses the reading of his own word. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and seminary a lecturer who was arrested by the Nazis for his opposition to Adolf Hitler. He was hanged in Flossenburg concentration camp at dawn on the 9th of April 1945, just two weeks before that camp was liberated by the Americans. Ten weeks into his two-year captivity, he wrote this to his parents. It is Monday, and I was just sitting down to a dinner of turnips and potatoes when your parcel arrived. Such things give me greater joy than I can say. Although I am convinced that nothing can break the bonds between us, I seem to need some outward token or sign to reassure me. And then he continues, I suppose it's rather like the purpose of the sacraments in our religion. Bonhoeffer knew that his parents loved him, but those little parcels sent to him express that love in a tangible way. And the Lord's table is exactly that. It is a a tangible reminder of just how much the Lord does love us. Just like those packages that Bonhoeffer received from his parents, the Lord's table was a physical, tangible expression of the love that he had for the disciples. On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a reminder to the disciples of his love. Now Luke records the historical details surrounding the institution of the Lord's Supper. He doesn't elaborate on all the theological significance of it. He just tells us what happened and what was said. It's the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and uh, 11 
that gives us the fuller theological understanding. And that material would have been in circulation already by the time Luke wrote his gospel, uh, because 1 Corinthians is some of the earliest, well, it is the earliest book of the New Testament, and it uh, was written eight years before the gospel of Luke. But nevertheless, Luke does give us and help us uh, teaching on the significance of this uh, table that the Lord instituted. Now, I want you to notice uh, four things this morning. First of all, the importance of the Lord's Supper in verses 7 through to 13. In verse 7, we are told it was the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. The day of unleavened bread was the day that Jewish families would search their homes, they would remove all the leaven from that home and then destroy it. Unleavened bread was then baked, a lamb was purchased and taken to the temple to be sacrificed. A sacri- uh, sacrifices began at three o'clock in the afternoon and, was, and were completed in three shifts. Every worshiper slaughtered his own sacrifice, but a priest caught the blood, passed it along a line of priests, and the last one then poured it out on the altar. The carcass of the animal was then returned to the worshiper who took it and roasted it for the Passover meal. That meal was celebrated in a specially prepared room, and the lamb was eaten along with bitter herbs, stewed fruit, unleavened bread, and four glasses of wine. So there was a lot of preparation that had to go in to make the uh, Passover possible. Now notice Jesus entrusts that preparation to two of his disciples, verse 8. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare Passover for us that we may eat it. They presumably had to get the lamb, they had to take it to the temple to be slaughtered, and then to the place where it was to be roasted. They asked the question in verse 9, where will you have us prepare it? They needed to know where to take the lamb. In response, Jesus gives them instructions about a man carrying a water pot, and they are to follow him and uh, then say to the master of the house uh, about the room. They were uh, to find then in that house a room that was already prepared or furnished, literally spread. My mother used to ask us to spread the table and read the table. to put things out on the table and to clear the table afterwards. So to spread the table meant that you put out the cutlery, the crockery, the jam, the butter, the the pickles, whatever needed to be put out, the milk, everything that was needed. And this unidentified man had everything spread, everything prepared. The, The table was there, the unleavened bread was there, the bitter herbs were there, the sauces were there, all was there, all was ready. Now the question then arises, why did Jesus entrust this task to Peter and John, and why did he arrange for them to meet this man in a clandestine way? Why not just take all the disciples to this house, or at least give them the address of the house and the time that they should turn up? What's the significance of the man carrying a water pot? Well, most scholars believe that this was a prearranged signal. You see, men didn't carry water pots in the ancient Near East. I don't want to sound sexist, but that was 
a woman's job. You remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4, uh, how she left her water pots and went in uh, to the city. Uh, it was unusual, highly unusual, to see a man carrying a water pot. It was a, be a bit like on a rainy day seeing uh, a man carrying a woman's umbrella, you know, maybe a pink umbrella, or seeing uh, in a snowy day someone wearing those uh, Wellington boots that are specially designed for women with big gaudy flowers on them. A man carrying a water pot was strange. It was different. And Peter and John would know that this was the man who would take them to the home by the fact that he was carrying the water pot. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why have this prearranged signal with this man who would lead Peter and John to the house and not inform the rest of the disciples about the location of the house and the time that they were to meet. Well, very simply, from our study last week, you remember that Judas had gone to the Jewish leadership and agreed a price to betray Jesus, to lead them to Jesus. If Jesus had have let Judas know where the meal was to be celebrated, he would immediately gone off, uh, informed the authorities, and led them to the upper room. He would have been arrested before the lamb was roasted, before the Passover was eaten, and before the table was instituted. And so he beforehand has arranged with this man to lead only two of the disciples to make preparations for the Passover. You see, he wanted to have this time with the disciples. It was important to him. Look at what he says there in verse 14 and 15. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The authorized version says, with desire I have desired. With desire I have desired. And in Hebrew and Aramaic, if you repeated something, it was an indication that there was something uh, very significant about that. So in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament Hebrew, you have a reference to pit pits. Repetition. And most translators translate that phrase as great pits, big pits, large pits because of the repetition of the word. You remember Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I say unto you, literally, amen, amen, truth, truth, I say unto you, when he said something of extraordinary um, importance. And Jesus says, I have uh, desired to desire. With desire, I have desired. It could be rendered, I have intensely desired. I have earnestly desired. I have passionately desired. Jesus was committed to celebrating this meal. It was important to him. And that's why he went such, to such lengths uh, with these clandestine uh, encounters with a man with water pots to make sure that the table that the Passover could be celebrated and the table could be instituted. It was important to him that nothing would interrupt these things. Now, if Jesus went to such lengths to guard the institution of the Lord's table, then you can be sure that the Lord's table was important to him. He wanted to institute it. He, he, um, 
it was significant and important to him that he celebrate it with the disciples. And if it was important to Jesus, and this is a very straightforward point, if it was important to Jesus, it should be important to us. Every true Christian should be at the table. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not optional extras for the Christian. The Lord instituted them. He gave them to us for our benefit. He was passionately committed to them. And if he was committed to them, so should we. The Lord's Supper is important and ought to be celebrated by his people. So the importance of the Lord's Supper. The second thing I want you to notice is the setting of the Lord's Supper. May be a very obvious point to make, but it is an important point that the setting of the Lord's Supper was the Passover meal. You see that in verses 13 and 14. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. The purpose of them gathering initially was to celebrate, to eat the Passover, and it's during the celebration of the Passover that Jesus instituted this new feast that has become known as the Lord's Supper. The Passover meal was a beautiful and highly significant ritual. It was celebrated by not less than 10 and not more than 20. Everything about it was designed to remind the worshiper of the first Passover when the angel of death passed over the Jewish homes, when he saw the blood on the doorposts and the lintels of their homes and struck down the firstborn in Egypt. The lamb that uh, was roasted reminded them of the lamb that had been sacrificed in Egypt. The unleavened bread reminded them of the haste in which they left Egypt, that they couldn't wait for the dough to rise. There was a bowl of salt water which reminded them of the tears that they shed in Egypt. There was a, a collection of bitter herbs that reminded them of their, the bitterness of their life in Egypt. There were bowls of stewed fruit which had the color and consistency of mud, which reminded them of the bricks that they baked in Egypt. And there were four glasses of wine taken at different points throughout the feast to remind them of the four promises in Exodus 6, 6, and 7. These promises were given to Moses as he was about to embark on this mission to take the people of God out of Egypt and bring them to the promised land. Four promises. Mightn't do any harm to look them up. Exodus 6, 6 and 7. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. First promise. I will deliver you from slavery. Second promise. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Third promise. And I will take you to be my own people fourth promise. So everything in the Passover was symbolic. The whole feast was designed to remind the worshiper of God's great deliverance from Egypt. Now that's important. You know that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the bread and the wine actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus. So that when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, that's what he literally meant. 
And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, a, a transubstantiation, a change in substance occurs, and the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus. Now, Martin Luther taught something very similar. He didn't believe in transubstantiation. He believed in consubstantiation. Not that the, the bread and wine literally became the body and blood of Jesus, but the literal body and blood of Jesus was conveyed with those elements. And so when he met Zwingli, the um, Swiss reformer, to discuss these matters in Marburg in 1529, he took chalk and he wrote on the table, this is my body, this is my blood. And so when Zwingli tried to reason with him and say that they were symbolic, he would just point to those words. This is my body, this is my blood, this is my body, this is my blood. And he refused to budge. However, the Passover setting, I think, is, is helpful uh, in us understanding what was actually happened. Because all those elements in the Passover, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, the salt water, the roasted lamb, they all signified something. They all pointed to something. And it seems to me that in that context, the bread and wine are also emblematic, uh, symbolic, that they point to something too. The whole context of the institution of the Lord's Supper is, is uh, a one of symbol and emblems. Now, the Passover began with a prayer of thanksgiving offered by the head of the house and the distribution of the first cup of wine. Um, I don't know if you noticed in reading that there, was, uh, there are two cups mentioned in the text. Well, the first cup is a reference to that first uh, cup that was passed about, that first promise in Exodus 6, 6 and 7, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. The second thing that happened was that the bitter herbs were eaten. Then thirdly, the youngest uh, person in the family would say, why do we eat this, these foods on this particular night? And in reply, the father, the head of the home, would give um, um, an explanation of the exodus and what these foods represent. Then fourthly, they would sing Psalm 113 and 114, which are the first two Hallel Psalms. Um, uh, and then they would um, uh, have the, the second cup, which was a reminder of the second promise. I will set you free. I will deliver you from slavery. And just before the meal was eaten, the plate of unleavened bread was taken and it was lifted up by the host. And he said, this is the bread of affliction which our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. And then the father would break that bread and he would give a piece of bread to everyone around the table. This is the bread that Jesus took in verse 19 and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then the lamb was carved and eaten. And after the lamb was eaten, the third cup of wine, which represented the third promise in Exodus 6, 6 and 7, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, uh, was taken. And it's this cup, it's the third cup that Jesus took and said, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
That was the cup of redemption. The third cup was the cup of redemption uh, with the third promise, I have redeemed you. So you have the eating of the unleavened bread, and then you have a meal in, the, uh, in between the, the, the distribution of the third cup. When I was uh, first converted, I um, used to listen to those words, after he had supped, he took the cup, which is the new covenant in my blood. And I used to think, well, we only have eaten a little morsel of bread. And, uh, and, but you've got to remember that there was the eating of bread, then there was supper, the meal in between, and then there was this third cup, the cup of redemption. And we know that the context of the Lord's Supper in the early church was in a, uh, the, a love feast, a meal that was celebrated. And, you know, the Corinthians were abusing that, and that's why the church done away with the meal, because it became a competition to see who could gorge themselves uh, the fastest. And, and that left us with the bread and the wine. And the Passover concluded with the singing of the rest of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 115 through to Psalm 118. And then the fourth cup was given, which was the cup of the fourth promise in Exodus 6, 6 and 7, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Now, do you see the significance of the setting of the Lord's Supper? The Passover that was highly symbolic uh, reminded the Israelites of their redemption when the judgment of God passed over them in Egypt and they were redeemed from slavery. And Jesus takes that feast, and to mix my metaphors, baptizes it with new meaning. He takes two elements in that feast and gives them a new meaning a new work of redemption called for a new feast of celebration. And so he institutes the Lord's Supper. Look at what our Lord says there in verse 20. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Passover celebrated the old covenant and the promises of Exodus 6, 6, and 7 to bring the people of God out of slavery in Egypt, the Lord's table was uh, instituted to celebrate the new covenant when the Lord brought his people out of slavery to sin at the cost of the blood of his own son to bring them ultimately into the promised land. Bread and wine to remind us of our great redemption. That's the background, the setting of the Lord's Supper. The importance of the Lord's Supper, the setting of the Lord's Supper, Thirdly, I want you to notice the significance of the Lord's Supper. Now, we've considered the importance of uh, the, the table, how Jesus went to great extraordinary lengths to institute it, to make sure it was protected so it could be celebrated. We have noticed the context of the institution was the highly emblematic uh, uh, and symbolic celebration of the Passover, now we want to take that a wee step further, and we want to ask, what was the significance of the Lord's Supper? What meaning lay behind the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine? If in the Passover all those elements pointed to and represented something, 
What do the elements, the bread and wine, represent in the new covenant? Well, I think the significance of the bread and wine can be summed up in one word, substitution. Look carefully at what Jesus says in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Look at verse 20. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you, poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. The bread represents my body, which is given for you, and the cup represents the blood which is poured out for you. Jesus is predicting soon, indeed very soon, the next day, that his body would be broken and that his blood would be shed. But he wants these disciples to understand that when that happened, that he would be suffering and dying in their place that his death would be a substitutionary death. I remember the context is the Passover. The lamb had been taken and slaughtered. The blood of that lamb painted on the doorposts and the lintels of the Jewish homes because when the angel of death saw that blood, he would pass over and the judgment of God would fall on the Egyptian homes. Remember the cup that Jesus took was the third cup of the Passover, the cup of redemption. I have redeemed you with an outstretched arm. So Jesus is saying to these disciples, like your ancestors, you are in bondage, in bondage not in Egypt, but in bondage to sin. You were a slave of sin, but just like that Passover lamb, I will die, my body will be broken, and my blood will be shed so that you may be redeemed, so that you may be set free from the consequences of your sin. I will die in your place. I will bear the punishment for your sins so that you will know the forgiveness of sin and the salvation of God. The doctrine of substitution lies at the very heart of the celebration of the Lord's table. This is my body which is given for you. This cup that is poured out for you, for you is the new covenant in my blood. The symbols are selected to remind the participants of the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, to remind them, as the prophet Isaiah said, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now, you'll know if you uh, read any Christian magazine or listen to any contemporary preaching, that the doctrine of the substitutionary death of Christ is a doctrine that is either ignored at best or being denied at worst. Steve Chalk refers to it as cosmic child abuse. But the very thought that God would punish his own son is considered to be barbaric. You know, the Gettys, I, I told you before that uh, their hymn, In Christ Alone, 
There was a, a publisher of a hymn book in America that wanted to change the line by his, uh, 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 sorry, his wrath is satisfied. The wrath of God is satisfied. They wanted to change that line into the love of God is magnified. They wanted to dispense with this barbaric notion of substitution. But right at the heart of the one of these two ordinances that Jesus left for his church is substitutionary atonement. This is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And the substitutionary death of Jesus lies at the very heart of this ordinance because it lies at the very heart of the gospel. Our sin has consequences. We all deserve to die, to die eternally, to be separated from the love, mercy, and grace of God forever and ever. But God so loved the world that he sent his son uh, into the world, not just simply to a manger in Bethlehem, not simply to preach in in Galilee and Samaria and uh, Judea, but he sent him to the cross of Calvary. And there the Lord Jesus took to himself our sin. And God the Father eh, gathered up the eternal wrath uh, that had been generated by His justice and poured out that wrath on His Son whom He loved that we might be legitimately and justifiably forgiven. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good that we might go at last to heaven saved by His precious blood. This is what we remember at the table. This is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Spurgeon in one of his sermons says, I've done with Christianity. I've done with the Bible. I've done with all my preaching. If you can convince me that the substitution of Christ is not a fact, that truth to me is the kernel, the core, the marrow, the vital essence of the the gospel. It's key, it's core to the gospel itself. I was reading about a missionary couple in West Africa, and they had a young eight-year-old daughter who was uh, playing at the edge of the compound um, on one particular day, and she fell into a pit, and she she broke her leg, and there was a black nurse who was coming to the uh, compound, to the hospital, uh, on duty. She heard the cries of the little girl, and she climbed down into the uh, pit to, to lift the girl out. But a poisonous snake injected poison into uh, the nurse and then into the child. And later that day, the nurse died, but the little child recovered. And her father explained to her that... Um, that because the poison had been injected into the nurse, although she was bitten, the snake had no poison to inject. And because the nurse died, she lived. And death is a sting. But that sting has been removed because that sting was put in Christ. Jesus died a substitutionary death. He took our sins and absorb them in his body on Calvary's cross. And when we come to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, we believe that he um, has so punished 
that God has so punished sin in His Son that payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding Savior's hand and then again at mine. Do you believe that? Are you resting in that? Can you come to the table to celebrate that? The substitutionary sacrifice. He took the sting that we might live. So the importance of the Lord's Supper, the setting of the Lord's Supper, the significance of the Lord's Supper. The last thing I want you to notice is the reason for the Lord's Supper. Why celebrate the Lord's Supper at all? Why did Jesus institute this feast to be celebrated by the church in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, until he comes? Well, the answer is given to us in verse 19. Do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's table was given that we will remember so that the disciples would remember the great cost of their uh, redemption, that great doctrine of substitution that Jesus died in our place. In a very real sense, the Lord's table is an accommodation to our weakness. Do this in remembrance of me. How could we ever forget? How could we ever forget such love and such grace, such such a sacrifice? But the thing is, our, our memories are so fickle and feeble, and we're so faithless at time that we need constantly to be reminded of the immeasurably great cost of our redemption, of our salvation, that his body was broken and his blood was shed. Jesus left bread and wine as a constant reminder of what the gospel is and the lengths that he went to rescue us from our sin. J.C. Ryle says the principal purpose of the Lord's Supper is to remind us of Christ's death for sinners. It's, it's a picture of what Christ accomplished through his sacrifice upon the cross. I was reading in a counseling magazine of um, the terrible car accident where a little boy died and uh, he was out riding his bicycle and he was uh, hit by a, a drunk driver. And after the funeral, the father returned to the scene of the accident and he picked up that mangled bicycle and he hung it up in the barn. And the, the younger brother struggled ever to, to, to recover from the, understandably, the trauma of that terrible accident. And he said to the counselor, you know, every time I see that bicycle in the barn, I just begin to weep. And the psychiatrist said, you know, how unhealthy it was to keep physical reminders of the tragedy that happened. But that's what exactly Jesus has done. Knowing our weakness and the fickleness of our memories, he has given us these physical personal reminders of his suffering so that every time we come to the table, yes, we are filled with grief, but we're also filled with joy when we remember his great love and the extraordinary lengths that he went to rescue us. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I, I love. There's this tendency in all of our hearts to drift. And I, I need personally to come to the table 
to realize the enormity of the sacrifice that he has made so that I can say, were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's the purpose of the table, just to remind us, to remind us of the enormity of his love. Why? One day, our memories are going to be healed. And our memories are going to be perfected. And for that reason, the table will become redundant. It will become unnecessary. Look at verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it has, uh, it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You see that in verse 18. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That this table is, is temporary. This table is passing away. And when we come to heaven, we will see face to face, and, uh, and, uh, and the bread and the wine will be redundant. The Lord's table will be replaced by the marriage supper of the Lamb. And just as the Passover was superseded by the Lord's table, so the Lord's table will be superseded by the marriage supper of the Lamb. But until that day, until that day, we should celebrate. We should come to the table and remind ourselves of the great cost of our salvation. Importance of the Lord's Supper, setting of the Lord's Supper, Passover meal, the significance of of the Lord's Supper for you. Just let those words ring in your mind. For you, for you. This is the bread that reminds you of the body that was broken for you. Of the, this is the cup that reminds you of the blood that was shed for you. And the reason for the Lord's Supper is that we might remember. Amen.